Galatians 1, 6 through 9. <clears throat> Let's pray before we go to, to the Word. Uh, Father, our, we're here for, for many reasons this morning, but I think chief among them is to hear the Word of Christ because He alone has everlasting life in His words. I ask that you strengthen faith in us by hearing His Word this morning and that you would give new faith to those who may have none and that uh, by the Holy Spirit of truth that you would guide us into all truth, testifying of Christ through your Holy Word. As your Word has its intended effect, Father, I pray that uh, we be moved to do good works which you have prepared beforehand for us to do and let us love one another with sincere brotherly love. And may we be a faithful witness of Christ, even in this valley, as we go from this place into the callings that you've given us uh, to fulfill through the week. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory that we ask these blessings on this time of hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Paul I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Amen. He may be seated. You may have noticed Paul usually opens his letters with some sort of thanksgiving, like, I thank God that you've received the gospel and that you're living in the gospel, and there's none of that here in Galatians. He just gets to the point. Even to the church of Corinth, he has this sort of thanksgiving letter, and, and Corinth was a mess, a moral wreck on all accounts. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says this of them, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. <laughs> as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, even for the Corinthians, he has this thanksgiving prayer that God is working in their lives, despite the, the, the fornication and the, the disunity and everything going on in that church. So I think the absence of such a prayer in Galatians also speaks volumes almost as much as a prayer would. And he launches instead into this headlong discussion of the issue at hand, which is the issue of the gospel. Paul, Paul does not mess around when it comes to the gospel. Paul's calling from God is to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is the thing that he labors for and strives for and suffers for so much. So, so for Paul, the purity of the gospel is uh, absolutely paramount. There's nothing more important. 
It's absolutely imperative for him that people understand there is only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is set in stone, never to be tampered with. This exclusivity and permanence of the gospel is a message that continues into today for us. And many challenges compete for our faith, um, emerging both from within our sinful hearts and from outside of us that, that seek to distract us and influence us to divert from the true gospel. So we need to be diligent to persevere and to preserve the purity of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I've identified what I see as four major threats kind of from this text to the purity of the gospel. Four major threats for us that we need to pay attention to and constantly guard our lives and our church against. And uh, Old Testament illustrations kept popping into my head, so I just kind of aligned each threat with an Old Testament story as an illustration. Um, so we can never have too much Bible anyway. So, um, so I've identified each threat with an Old Testament illustration. Um, so I'll tell you them and then explain them to you as we go. So... Uh, first, that is, we are gomers. We are, we are gomers. Second, we drink from broken cisterns. We drink from broken cisterns. Third, we welcome the Midianites. We welcome the Midianites. And fourth, we are Uzzas. Uzzas. <laughs> okay, first, we are gomers. This story comes from Hosea chapters 1 um, through 3 primarily. Um, so the, this first threat really is, is like the hymnist said, that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We, we lean toward unfaithfulness. And it's really amazing that the, the connection between the Sunday school class this morning and this sermon, because they're nearly the same message. We lean toward unfaithfulness. The, the prophet Hosea was called by God to marry a prostitute whose, whose name was Gomer. And this relationship was meant to represent the relationship between God and Israel, and God being the faithful husband, Israel being the, the prostitute, the unfaithful spouse. Gomer, after Hosea married Gomer, Gomer was, as you might expect, unfaithful to him. She went out from him again, and then God called him a second time to go back and, and redeem her, to pay the price and to redeem her and say, you are mine exclusively. So that's why I titled the sermon uh, Gospel Gomers. Because as fallen people, we are not unlike uh, ladies of the night, giving ourselves to whichever particular idol will pay or yield the highest profit to us. But then God calls him to himself and he saves us. He makes us his own beloved. But even so, unfortunately, we still are fallen. We still have lustful, wandering eyes for the idols of our hearts. We're inclined even then, even as Christians, to give ourselves over to the idols that we find dear. So it seems that's what's happening with the Galatian churches. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So we have to remember, these are professing Christians. They're not sort of just abandoning one good idea for another good idea. They're turning their back, he says, on a person. 
The one who called you, that's who they're turning their back on. The one who called you in the grace of Christ. He says later in verse 9 that this is a gospel that they had received, they had accepted. So these are Christians, but prone to wander. Now, of course, we have to have confidence that those of us who are truly given unto the Son, that He will sustain us to the last day. But these texts, these kind of warnings, need to be a correction for us and to to correct our wandering eyes. They're meant to lead us to repentance and confession of our flirtation with false gospels. And those of us who are truly of Christ will heed these warnings and, and be sustained by them. Um, Paul's tone here is described as one of sort of fatherly correction to the to the Galatian churches. Um, it's firm, it's it's forceful, it's corrective, it's direct. I'm I'm astonished that you've done this, that you've turned your back on God. But it, it's interesting, as forceful it is, as it is, it doesn't carry the same force as he does later with the people teaching this doctrine. There's a difference here. He is pleading with them like a father, pleading with the people of Galatia. And, and it's as though his heart physically aches over their bad, decision, uh, bad decisions of their, his children. He, he's surprised by their unfaithfulness. He's astonished. That word astonished carries with it this idea of um, amazement or, or marveling. I mean, I'm sure all of us as parents have marveled at our kids' ingenuity at, at being mischievous. Wow, that's, a, that's almost impressive. I never even thought of doing that. <laughs> Jesus does this all the time in the Gospels. He, he says that he marveled at their unbelief. He says, wow. Paul says, I can't believe you're turning your back on God. You're, you're deserting him and, and so quickly. I think anyone who's a true believer, to, to hear that accusation would be a piercing accusation for them. You think I'm deserting God? And notice here that turning to another gospel is one and the same action as turning from God. The two things go hand in hand. Those people who would say all religions are paths that lead to the same place have obviously never read Galatians, or at least not taken it to heart. So to turn your back on the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ is the same thing as turning your back on God. I want us to recognize two things here at this point. The first is that God is faithful even though we are not. As he instructed Hosea to redeem the adulterous woman, he will redeem those who are unfaithful to him. And he will be faithful. And the second thing I want us to realize here following from the first is that as redeemed gospel gomers, if you will, people with wandering eyes, we must constantly be repenting and turning from our false gospels that we find so dear. So on the one hand, if we plunge into a lifelong adulterous relationship with our idols, that proves we're not of Christ. But if we, I think a, the mark of a spirit-filled, regenerate Christian is not that they never wander, but that they're always brought back, that they repent. So I'd ask you this morning to think about it. What are these different Gospels that attract you, that cause you to wander? And I'd urge you to identify them specifically. 
because then you can repent of them specifically. I think the, is it the confession or the catechism that says that we should uh, confess our particular sins particularly, <laughs> that's, that's what we need to be doing here. Perhaps for you it's the gospel of sin all the more that grace may abound. This gospel of antinomianism, this idea that Christ's blood has freed you from the guilt of sin, but not from the power of sin. Or maybe it's the gospel of inclusivism that we were just talking about that's so pervasive in our day. Maybe you'll sing in Christ alone along with the radio, but but you really have a hard time believing that your friendly, kind, helpful, agnostic neighbor is really going to be damned. Or perhaps you struggle with the gospel of works that we read about in this book, that deep down you believe I can contribute in some measure to, to grace, to my salvation. And, and truth be told, I search my heart and find bits and pieces of all of these false gospels in the corners of my heart. And there's many more we could use as examples. But the picture Paul presents here is one of, uh, I think of it as repentance in the wrong direction. You know, repentance is this idea of turning. We talked about that in Sunday school. Well, they were turned toward God and they turned away from God. They repented in the wrong direction. And so this is a call to re-repent, turn back to God. And then it's important that we cling to the grace of Christ that's found only in the true gospel because that's the glory of our gospel. All my best works are filthy rags tainted by sin. And the glory of the cross is that we don't have to rely on our filthy rags to restore us to God's good favor, but that grace is lavished on us in Christ when we turn and repent and ask for forgiveness for our adoration of our particular idols. Okay, so the first threat was that we're... Gomers, we're prone to unfaithfulness. The second threat, we drink from broken cisterns. Stories from Jeremiah chapter 2. We drink from broken cisterns. Um, Keith Richards' struggle to obtain satisfaction is actually a, a good commentary on the human condition. We, we all have unquenchable thirst, unquenchable hunger pains. And the devil's fruit that we bite into is that there are many quality sources of nutrition, of food and drink. In other words, we believe that these false gospels are actually viable substitutes for the gospel. Almost like saying turkey bacon is a viable substitute for bacon. (laughs) I like turkey bacon, but it's not bacon. So Paul makes it clear here that other Gospels do exist, but they're not Gospels. He says, you're turning to a different Gospel, not that there is another one. There's only one. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and heated out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In Wetmore, where Kelly and I grew up, and I think I've shared this with you before, but the, the, 
it's an older place and all the wells are shallow, 15, 20, 25 feet deep, and they all depend on a creek, hard scrabble creek, and every summer the creek, almost every summer it dries up. And so uh, as soon as the creek dries up, you start hearing about people's wells going dry. And many of them have cisterns and haul water from Florence to fill up their, their cisterns. Um, so a memory I have from childhood, uh, we lived in, my dad was a pastor, and we lived in the parsonage, So, and there was a, a crawl space. So I'd go under there, get on a skateboard on my stomach, and wheel myself back to the well, pull the, pull the plywood off, put a flashlight on the string, and lower it down and see how much water we had in there. See, so, you know, can we do laundry? Can we have showers? Um, and, of course, you know, the creek goes dry, but there's water underground, so sometimes there's two or three feet in there, even if there's no water in the creek. But I, I remember a few times people would, from the church would bring a tank of water and, and put a fire hose under there and, and try to dump water into the well. Well, the water in the well is always at whatever the ground level, groundwater level is at, so it's, it's useless, it's pointless to pour water into the well. I think this is the kind of fruitless effort we expect when we turn to different Gospels to satisfy our thirst. We commit, he says, two evils. This is, again, the repentance in the wrong direction. We turn from the fountain of living waters, the wellspring of life, which cannot be depleted no matter how much we drink from it, and we go to broken cisterns, those leaky ones. And I have this picture of this poor guy stranded in the desert with like a solar still filling up half a tin can of, of water every day and pouring it in a hole in the ground hoping to build up a reserve of water but it never works what a waste when we have the, the fountain of living water these other gospels are non-gospels they're not gospels at all they will not satisfy our thirst and will really wear ourselves out trying to satisfy our thirst with them Now, another aspect of this is that getting ourselves to admit that the idols of our hearts are actually different Gospels is a challenge all to itself. The ploy of the evil one has always been to adjust God's Word, to to tweak it just a little bit, to deceive people to think that they still have the true Gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. They want to distort it. They want to alter it in some fashion. I think of a, of a tailor altering some clothing to, to make it fit the person, to fit their form and function. And, and it's actually more dramatic. I was looking up the word. It's more dramatic than just minor alterations that a tailor would make. The word is more has this idea of a change in substance, to, to transform something. When it says they want to distort the gospel of Christ, they are transforming the substance of it. One of the options that the, the lexicon gave for words for this is the word transmute. So I was like, well, I don't really know what transmute means. So I type in transmute, and I started. I found these articles about how people um, have undertaken the, the quest to transmute lead to gold, and and it's possible theoretically and it's actually been done by take by changing the number of protons in an element you can actually change one element into another you can transmute it now of course for you entrepreneurial types this is not a viable business opportunity <laughs> um, the, the the energy that you need to use to to 
to create this reaction um, far outweighs the worth of the gold that you produce. Um, but the point is they can transmute, they can change the element from one thing to another, from lead to gold. And this is what these people are doing to the gospel. They are transmuting it. And even as you subtract or add one proton to an element, it changes the element entirely. So a subtle addition or subtraction of one or two components of the gospel transmutes it, changes it entirely. This is why it's so imperative that we preserve the purity of the gospel. That, that one work, just one circumcision or one penance added to grace transmutes the gospel, changes it to something else entirely. So even as we repent of our darling false gospels, we should really rejoice at the realization that we only stand to gain everything by their loss. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is where we find God, the fountain of living waters. Jesus made it plain in John 4 through 6 that He is the living water. If we drink of Him, we will not thirst. He is the bread of life. If we eat of Him, we will never hunger. So I urge you to pay attention to those moments, and we all are trying to drink from cisterns which cannot hold water. Pay attention to when you may be adding or subtracting just one small element or component of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because by adding one thing, we abandon the whole thing and thus desert God who calls us. Now, the third threat to the purity of the gospel, here's what I've said. We welcome the Midianites. From the story from Numbers chapter 25, we welcome the Midianites. <coughs> so we need to keep careful watch over our own hearts because they're sources of idolatry. Calvin said they're factories of idolatry. But even oftentimes the threats come from outside of us too, from teachers. Generally in the church, it begins with teachers. Arianism was such a problem because Arius was really a great teacher. He was skilled, likable, and and a very capable teacher. Part of our duty as the church is to create an environment that's inhospitable for false teaching to take root. And sadly, we're too often welcoming to untruth in our midst. There are times when harshness is appropriate, as Paul shows us here, and the threats to the pure gospel are chief among those times. This is why God commanded the utter annihilation of the Canaanites in the conquest. He knew the propensity of the people to to run away, to flee to false gospels, to go to other gods, other idols, if they were around them. So he said, kill them all, wipe them all out, so you're not distracted and taken away into false idol worship. And of course, we know they didn't obey God's command to obliterate the Canaanites, and unfaithfulness was a perpetual problem for Israel from then on. Um, so sometimes we're like that man who, I'm sure you remember the story, who brought the Midianite woman into the camp. And this was right after Moses had, had hung the chiefs of the people at God's command for bowing with the Moabites to the Baals. And then it says they were still in the midst of weeping about this, and this guy brings this Midianite woman into the camp. And if you remember the story, Phineas, the grandson of, of Aaron, I believe, um, in righteous anger, ran and thrust them both through with a spear. 
and he's hanging in this this thrusting through with a spear. These are graphic illustrations of the violence which is appropriate to remove idols from God's people. Now, they were in the conquest. We're not. So not we don't undertake physical violence. We don't blow up abortion clinics. But we cannot mess around with the Midianites. When there's a false gospel in our midst, it, it must not be welcomed and it must not be tolerated. We need to uh, obliterate the Canaanites and, and with the weapons of the warfare that God has given to the church in the New, New Testament era. So this is why Paul is so harsh with the teachers of this different gospel. He says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. A word accursed is the word anathema. Um, he's saying, let them be damned. Again, he was relatively light on the Galatian people who were caught up in this error. But, but for the people who were teaching it, he doesn't miss, mince words. He, he says, they can be damned. Robert Robertson, who wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and pinned those lines that I opened with, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It. Um, he's an interesting case study because later in his life, it seems that he did wander. He, he had a fairly dramatic conversion experience as a young man under the preaching of George Whitfield, And he had a rough past and, and no theological uh, education or really much education at all. But he began, began preaching at the age of 22 and rose to a fairly high degree of, of prominence as a Calvinistic Baptist preacher. Late, late in his life, however, he began to adopt a sort of social gospel emphasis. And he started to associate with this group of Unitarians who, who denied Christ's divinity. They were Socinian. And he even in his church had a group of Socinians. And these people uh, were in his church and he, didn't, he, he refused to do anything about their presence. In his own words, they were mistaken brethren. Um, to give Robertson Robinson a, a, the benefit of the doubt, by all accounts, he suffered at this point from insanity. His sermons were incoherent. He had seemed to have lost his mind. Um, but he allowed, essentially, the Midianites to live in the camp, as it were. Socinians are not mistaken brethren. They are false brethren. The, the deity of Christ is not a negotiable element of the gospel. So these people who were teaching this doctrine in his church have, should have been cast out, removed at the first whisper of this doctrine. And those people who had bought into this gospel needed to be firmly corrected, as Paul demonstrates here, and with gentleness and care for their souls brought back into the fold, into true gospel teaching. And of course, teachers can sound so convincing and so authoritative to us. And it's quite likely that the false teachers in Galatia had come from Judea. We're not sure, but they may have come from Judea, and they probably flashed some kind of credentials. We've been there. We've maybe we've heard the apostles teach or something. Whatever it was, they held some sway in the Galatian churches. They held some authority. And Paul doesn't care who brings them the gospel. He doesn't care what their badge says. He says, even if an angel from heaven or we ourselves, even if Paul brings a gospel different to the one that he preached before, 
anathema. This is why it's so important that Jesus Christ and not any person, but Jesus Christ be the head of the church. And and not just doctrinally, not just confessionally, but practically head of his church. Now prepare yourself. Bear with me because I'm going to bound off into the weeds of Presbyterianism here for a moment. And I'm going to quote the Book of Church Order. Michael and I joke about the Book of Church Order. And I think it's universally recognized that it's not the most efficient or brief document. But even though it's kind of cumbersome, I think it's a noble effort to lay out a practical system of biblical church government. And really, the first section is beautiful. And it lays out in a beautiful way um, that Jesus is the head of his church, doctrinally, confessionally, and practically. So just listen to this, because I think it's really solid and biblical. It says, Jesus Christ, upon whose shoulders the government rests, whose name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of whose government and of peace there shall be no end, who sits upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth and forever having all power given to him in heaven and on earth by the Father who raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and in every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He being ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things, received gifts for his church, and gave all offenses necessary for the edification of his church and the perfecting of his saints. Jesus, the mediator, the sole priest, prophet, king, savior, and head of the church, contains in himself, by way of eminency, all the offices of his church, and has many of their names attributed to him in the scriptures. He is apostle, teacher, pastor, minister, overseer, and the only lawgiver in Zion. It belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws unto the edification and establishment of his kingdom. Christ as king is given to his church, officers, oracles, and ordinances, and especially he has ordained therein his system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship, all of which are either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced therefrom, and to which things he commands that nothing be added and from them not not be taken away. Since the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, he is present with the church by his word and spirit, and the benefits of all his offices are effectually applied by the Holy Ghost. Okay, back out of the weeds of Presbyterianism. I think this is a very biblical and practical approach because it starts with the Bible, all of the titles that Jesus has given, all of the offices he fulfills, and it shows how he, through his ministers and through his um, oracles, ordinances, and officers, governs his church immediately through them. So Christ is head of his church, and very practically, he accomplishes his purposes as our king. 
So Paul is so animated at the corruption of the gospel um, that he originally got, brought to the Galatians because that gospel was the pure gospel that King Jesus gave him to bring to the Gentiles. And neither an angel nor Paul himself has the authority to change what King Jesus has given. And so he won't put up with people who teach something else. The, the Midianites are not permitted within the camp. Well, Paul has watch over the flock of God. No wolf is going to gain entrance. And no usurper to the authority of King Jesus will be given to freedom to speak his peace. Okay, the fourth threat to the purity of the gospel is that we are Uzzahs. Second Samuel 6 is where the story comes from. We are like Uzzah. <clears throat> Um, Paul here is really so emphatic that he repeats what he just said. He says again in verse 8, basically what he said before in verse 9. As we have said before, now, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There's three changes in here between verse 8 and 9. The first, he makes more explicitly universal uh, his claim. He says, if anyone is preaching to you a different gospel which includes the false teachers in Galatia. And he seems really to be kind of like Phineas here, aiming his spear at the the false teachers in Galatia. And this is shown here in in the second change, is that he changes from the subjunctive, if anyone should or might preach to you a different gospel, and now he's changed to the indicative, if anyone is now preaching to you a different gospel. He's aiming directly at these people in Galatia. The third change here is that he's changed from the gospel we preached to the gospel you received. They had received it. Now there's a reason that the Ark of the Covenant was carried with wooden poles. It was not to be touched. God says in Numbers 4 that no one's to touch the holy things in the tabernacle. At least they die. An express command of God. And people like to say, especially when I'm talking with people about worship, they like to say, well, it's the heart that really matters. I've asked a number of people, do you think Uzzah had good intentions when he tried to steady the ark? I mean, I think his heart was at least partly in the right place. If you recall the story, David and the Israelites were transporting the ark back from the Philistines, and they had it on a cart with oxen pulling it, and the oxen stumbled, and, and Uzzah went to steady the ark. He touched it, and God dropped him where he stood. So I think it's, we can see this here in other places in Scripture, that the heart does matter, of course, but so does obedience to God's specific commands and and how he calls us to worship him. Not only the spirit, but also the form and the letter matter as well. If we're not willing to obey God's specific commands, um, no matter the disposition of our good intentions, if we're not willing to do that, our hearts by definition are in the wrong place. If we will not reveal what God has said. So, Uzzah, I think, here couldn't claim ignorance. The word expressly said, do not touch the ark. The first problem here probably was they were carrying the ark on a cart with oxen. (laughs) They shouldn't have been doing that. They should have been had it on poles. And then, Uzzah just expressly disobeyed the word of the Lord and touched the ark. The, The Galatian churches could not say, 
oh, well, we didn't really understand the gospel that you brought us the first time. He says right here, this is the gospel you received. They can't say, oh, we were doing our best to try to understand the truth. No, they rejected the truth they had already received. In essence, I think we can say they were straying from orthodoxy. Orthodoxy simply means straight opinion or or right belief. And it carries kind of the connotation now of believing the historically received doctrines. If you read Paul, you see orthodoxy is incredibly important to Paul. A couple of examples. He commands Titus that anyone who would be an overseer, an elder of the church, must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And he urges in, in Colossians to the Colossian church, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is why apostolic doctrine, as we discussed last week, is so important. This teaching passed down to us from the apostles. This is why we recite the creeds every week. They're they're guide rails to keep us on the track of orthodoxy. The word creed means belief. So that's why Stan will often ask, Christian, what do you believe? The Apostles' Creed is called as such because it's meant to be a summary of the apostolic doctrine passed down to us. The creeds represent historic Christian orthodoxy. So to venture from them is to be very close to venturing from what has been received. Of course, they're not scripture. We can critique them if we want um, with much trepidation. I would suggest that, that we should... If we ever critique the historically accepted creeds, we should do so with a profound awareness that these creeds have stood the test of many centuries of biblically informed, spirit-indwelt Christians. And that probably we'd be the first person to to change it. Which is, is, I say, with much trepidation, critique may be offered. But I say, what a blessing to have this rich heritage of orthodox, of apostolic doctrine passed down to us. We, we don't have to start from ground zero on so many doctrines. So our doctrine and our practice should reflect a careful adherence to the trustworthy word as taught, handed down to us from the apostles. And because we are so inclined to drift into the error of Uzzah, who, who thought he knew better than the word of God, God takes his own word seriously and he'll hold us accountable to it. So there's one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, passed down to us from the apostles. And we need to be cautious of these um, threats to the purity of the gospel that invade our own hearts day by day and and seek to invade the church. Um, So I'll leave you with an exhortation from... uh, Brother Spurgeon. He says, Avoid a sugared gospel as you would shun sugar of lead. Seek that gospel which rips up and tears and cuts and wounds and hacks and even kills, for that is the gospel that makes alive again. And when you have found it, give good heed to it. Let it enter your inmost being. As the rain soaks into the ground, so pray the Lord to let his gospel soak into your soul.
Amen.